If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 6. The first five chapters of Romans was about the topic of justification. How do we get God to look at us as if our sins have been taken away, carried away? Do we do that by works of the law? No, we do that by faith. Through faith and love of our God and his only begotten son who died for us. Chapter 6 through about 7 or 8 is about sanctification. And that's a big word. But it's a word that you really do know and understand. You're familiar with the word holy and holiness. Sanctification is from the same root. Sanctification is making yourself holy. Holy means separated unto God, set apart to God. How do you set yourself apart to God and make yourself different from the world? Is through obedience to the commandments. So here is the tightrope that Paul is walking that causes people so much confusion. He says, if you're trying to be saved by the works of the law, stop it. That's not possible. Salvation's only by faith. But once you've been saved, then be sure to keep the commandments of the law for sanctification, to be holy. So people go, well, it's the same thing, but it's not. One is recognizing that salvation comes as a free gift from God when we repent and turn to God in faith and love. And then we demonstrate that love through sanctification by cleaning the sin out of our lives. And I still have people that say, oh, nah, once I walk down the aisle, now I'm free to sin all I want to. And when I say, where is that in the Bible? They all go, I won't talk no more. Because where is it in the Bible? Nowhere. Where is it in the Bible that we need to, once we're saved, walk in the commandments? All over the place, including Romans chapter 6. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer? In Greek, come on. Majinoito. You guys are going to know that Greek phrase if you don't know any others. It means ain't no way. That's in Southern. Okay, today we're in verse 17. Which means we must back up to verse 15 for context. Just briefly. Verse 15 says, what then shall we sin? What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's commandments. So he says, shall we continue to break God's commandments? Because we're not saved by the law, but because we're saved by grace. And his answer, majinoito. Certainly not. God forbid in the King James. Verse 16 said, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants, it's the same Hebrew word, it's evet, who you present yourselves servants to obey, you are that one's servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But Paul's writing to believers. And Paul says, if you submit yourselves into slavery or servitude to sin, where will you end up? Heaven? No. Death, the lake of fire, eternal death. 
or of obedience leading to righteousness. Obedience to whom? To me, the leader of the congregation? No way. Or I should have said Majonito. <laughs> or of obedience to God's commandments leading to righteousness. That is what sanctification is. Obedience leading to righteousness. Now verse 17 says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, were when? When you were lost, before you got saved. Which means once you got saved, should you continue to be slaves? No. That though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. The heart is the key. Did they have Gray's Anatomy back in 2,000 years ago? They did not. Did they know what the heart was? Not really. The heart is the inside, what drives you, what makes you do what you do. But from the heart, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, was that form of doctrine, now go sin again? No. Was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That form of doctrine to which you were delivered. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Where do we get proper doctrine? Is it from your church denominational handbook? Is it from your seminary? No. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 tells us the source of our doctrine. All scripture or every scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know that doesn't carry the meaning. In Greek it's theonuptos. Theo means God. Nuptos means breathed. So what did Messiah say in Matthew 4.4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the lips of God. That's what is theonuptos. That is what's God breathed. So every word God spoke is what Paul means is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when Paul says every word that came out of God's mouth is good for doctrine, did he mean that they should be ignored, considered abolished, fulfilled, done away with, set aside of no value? Quite the contrary. Majinoito, that's right. This is the only acceptable doctrine. For what did Messiah say in Mark chapter 7? If your doctrine is based on the commandments of men, then it's vain, empty, void, of no effect, useless even. Does that frighten you a little bit? Let's go to Matthew 15, 9. Matthew 15, 9. Says the same as Mark 7, but I want you to know God said it more than once. Well, that's not true. He said it once, but it was just written down by two different apostles. Did they write down everything the Lord said? No. They wrote down the things that they thought were most important. And this one they really thought was important. We'll start in verse 7 for context. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people, 
draw near to me with their mouth. What does that mean, they draw near to me with their mouth? They give them lip service, but more. Do they claim God to be their God? Do they claim to be his children? Do they claim to be saved? Do they claim to be righteous? Yes. They put on a good show, but is it real? No, that's what the word hypocrite means. They're pretending. And they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If God doesn't have your heart, you're lost. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So if you put 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 with Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 to 9, if our doctrines are not to be based on the commandments of men, what should they be based upon? The commandments of God. But doesn't God change his commandments periodically? Linda, would you stand up and show everybody your shirt? <laughs> it says, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. That's Psalm 89:34. Let's look also at Matthew 16, verse 12. It's certainly a relief to me that God doesn't change. What if God, in the last 2,000 years, decided, I've changed the way of salvation? It's now only blondes. Boy, I'm in trouble. I mean, I've actually heard it taught that the plan of salvation that we have is plan B. Yes, I've heard it taught too that this is plan B, that God had plan A and it didn't work. It failed miserably. He had to go back to the drawing board and figure out something else. Do you believe that for a moment? Now, what does the scripture say? Messiah is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Not an afterthought. Look at Matthew 16, verse 12. And let's back up to verse 5 for context. But verse 12 is the key. Verse 5 says, Now his disciples have come to the other side. That's not from Republican to Democrat. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had forgotten to take bread. Yeshua said to them, Take heed to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're racing among themselves saying, it's because we've taken no bread. How many people did Messiah just feed? 5,000. But Yeshua being aware of it said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? How many baskets did they take up? 12. How many were the disciples? 12. They weren't baskets like you and I think of baskets. They were satchels worn on the shoulder. So each of the 12 apostles had a satchel on the shoulder full of fish and bread that they ate on from then till now. They might still have been chewing on it while they're talking to Messiah here. Verse 10, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000. I mean, large baskets you took up. How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What was the problem with the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What was it based upon? Man-made commandments. Boy, it's a good thing the world doesn't do that today, huh?
whoever follows it twice and son of, went to son of hell. Is That's exactly what he said. You chase converts from shore to shore and pole to pole. And when you find one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Where is that? Let's go to Matthew 23. Verse 15, left-hand side of the page. Woe to you. Let me let you get there. Remember, if you're not a horse, woe is the bad thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. That means a Gentile who's willing to convert to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So many people say to me, but Wayne, people out there, they're just taught wrong. So God shouldn't hold that against them. These proselytes were taught wrong. And what does the Lord say? That they're not going to heaven. Hmm. Let's go on to the book of John chapter 7. John 7, verse 16, another objection I hear often is, but Jesus came and changed all God's commandments. He changed the doctrine. But what does he himself say in John 7, 16? Yeshua answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Did Messiah come to change the doctrine, to change the commandments? He did not. What does John chapter 12 verses 49 and 50 tell us? John chapter 12 verses 49 and 50. John 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority... But the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. Do you think that command was go, hey, hey, go change everything I ever said? No. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And in John 14, again we hear, and think about it, why is John writing these things? Because all the other apostles are long since dead, and the congregations are going off the rails, adopting these wrong doctrines, and John's trying to put them back on the straight and narrow. And in John 14, verses 23 and 24, it says, Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Does this help us understand what, what Messiah said in Matthew chapter 5? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill 
Hmm. Colossians 2, once more, and then we'll get off this point. Colossians 2, verses 20 and 23. Therefore, the therefore is because the commandments of God teach about Messiah. Therefore, if you died with Messiah from the basic principles of the world, most Christian pastors I've ever heard teach about this say that refers to God's commandments. You died with Messiah so that you wouldn't have to be subject to God's commandments anymore. But is that what this says? No. Why is the living in the world? Do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Why would you leave God's commandments and turn to man-made commandments? What did they ever do for you before? Nothing. What will they do for you now? Nothing. Verse 23 says, these things, that is these man-made rules and regulations, indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look to be wise. In self-imposed religion. Uh-oh, what does self-imposed mean? Yeah, it's not from God. False humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1 goes on. If then you were raised with Messiah, so buried in baptism, raised to new life, seek those things which are above, that is the things that come from God, where Messiah is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So where should our doctrine come from? Above? Or from the things on the earth. From the things that are above. So let us go back to Romans 6. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin. This concept is going to be repeated over and over again in chapter 7. So what does it mean? When you died to the world in the baptism and you put aside the sins of the world you're no longer slaves to it that's what he means by if you've been set free from sin before you got saved you had no power to stop sinning the fleshly nature of mankind cannot stop sinning having been set free from sin you became slaves or servants of righteousness. Again, you guys are going to bite me one of these days, but righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. I keep saying it so much, I guess, because I've heard all my life that Paul said, quit keeping God's commandments. They don't apply anymore. Do you see anything here that suggests that? Nor do I. Verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms. He says, okay, let's stop being so theological. Y'all didn't go to seminary, you guys in Rome. So let me just talk to you like people. 
because of the weakness of your flesh. Human flesh is weak. It lacks the ability to avoid sin. We need God's Holy Spirit within us in order to be able to turn aside from sin. It says, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that is, before you got saved, you were in sin, each and every one of you. Me too. And of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. That is the natural state of mankind. So now, why does he say so now? What's changed? You got saved. So now, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. The word holiness here comes from the same word as sanctification. That's what he means. When we turn aside from the sin, we walk uprightly before God, keeping his commandments. That is sanctification. That is holiness. Setting your si yourself aside to God, away from the world. Those two words, holiness and sanctification, are really then interchangeable. Keep a finger here and go to Ezekiel 33.11. I heard Amir Zarfati say something I really like today. People are always asking him, well, you know, if we're supposed to keep God's commandments, why didn't he repeat everything in the New Testament? The answer was essentially because you're supposed to read the Old Testament too. What does the scripture say? Why is the Old Testament there for us to what? Learn from it. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? What does that word turn mean? Repent. Is it a suggestion here? No, those are command forms. But notice it says, turn from the wicked way and live. What does that mean if you say, no, I'm not going to repent. I like my sin. <clears throat> then you're on the path to death, not to life. Is that what God said back in Deuteronomy 30? I think it is. Let's turn back there and see. Verse 15. See, I've said before you today, life and good, death and evil. In that, in that means this is how I've said before you today, life and death, for you to choose. But I command you today to love the Lord your God. Which organ is involved in loving the Lord your God? The heart. To walk in his ways. 
To walk in his ways brings up the phrase or Hebrew word halakha, which means the way we walk, the way we live before God in accordance to his commandments. And to keep or to guard, to protect his precious, his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. How much more clear could God make it? Let's go to Hebrews 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12. Verse 14. The word used in Romans 6 was holiness, right? Holiness. You see that same word in Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I was trying to think how I could comment on that to make it more clear, and I just think it's pretty clear as it is. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So let's go back to Romans chapter 6. We're up to verse 20. For, this kind of for means what? Because when you were slaves of sin, meaning before you got saved, you were free in regard to righteousness. So before you got saved, you did not have to walk in righteousness because you were going to die eternally anyway. So why then... Did people choose to get saved instead of continuing to walk in sin? Because the wages of sin is death. And they didn't want it. They wanted an alternative. What did they say to Peter in, second, in Acts chapter 2? They said, what then shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent. Repent. So in verse 21, Paul wants the Romans to think about before they got saved versus after they got saved. He says in verse 21, what fruit, that is fruit of righteousness leading to eternal life, did you have then, before you got saved, in the things of which you are now ashamed? What eternal good do those sins do? None. For the end of those things is death. He's saying that's why you chose to repent and come to God in faith and love. Because you recognized that the end of sin is death. And you didn't want that anymore. 
So if you knew and know that the end of sin is death, why would you want to continue to walk in it? If you do continue to walk in it, were you really saved? I think the answer is no. But I'll let God be the judge. But verse 22 now explains it. But first we got to do James chapter 1 verse 15. Because I kept saying sin leads to death. Got to put some verses with it. James chapter 1 verse 15. I'm not just making it up. Of course, you guys who know me know I wouldn't do that. Then, when desire has conceived, it, bring, it gives birth to sin. And sin which is full grown brings forth what? Death. Sin brings forth death. Do you see why Paul keeps saying in Romans 6, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer, God forbid, Majinoito. Ain't no way, Jose. Let's look also at James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. James chapter 5, same book. Verses 19 and 20. It's written to believers. It's written to believers. We've got to understand that. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren. Whom does James call brethren? Believers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth. What is the truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. The Torah. And someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from what? from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what does James say the end is of the brother who decides to walk away from God and go back to his sin? His end result is not the kingdom, is it? But if you can persuade the person to repent and come back to God, it says you will have saved a soul from death. So what is the end result of sin? Death. I just don't understand. No matter what you do, it tells you not to sin. I don't understand where they get their doctrine, like how they can read this and not see it. One of the first doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church back in the 4th century was that what we tell you takes precedence over the Bible. And that is propagated down through the centuries, even into the Protestant denominations. That doctrine takes precedence over Bible. And they put it essentially this way. My, my Bible college book on hermeneutics, I think, is back there on the shelf. In hermeneutics, they give you a list of rules of interpretation. The last of which in every one of the lists is... If when you're done interpreting the passage, it differs from traditional church doctrine, then you did not understand the passage, so just ignore it. Oh, wow. 
That's just another way of saying our doctrine takes precedence over the scriptures. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. If you had to have that Bible study, where would we be? <laughs> Make a fire. <laughs> Let's say, hopefully God would have found another way to get truth across. What I have found is that the people that come to study are those that have a real God-given desire to study the word, to dig into it. Those that are not sufficient with just simply give me a verse or two and let me go home. Okay, back to Romans 6. Verse 22. But now. Those are very important words. But now. You were on the path to death. But now. Having been set free from sin, that is through faith and love. And having become slaves of God, that is to be obedient every bit as much as a slave in the Old Testament would have been to his master. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Yes, ma'am. That is, what is the end result of holiness? Everlasting life. Let's go back to Hebrews again, because it's the same thing Paul tries to get across in Hebrews. That word is telos. It's the goal. It doesn't mean the termination. You're absolutely right. Back to Hebrews 12, 14, and I want you to link these two verses together. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, what? No one will see God. In Romans 6, 22, have your fruit to holiness in the end, that is the result of holiness, eternal life. So those are trying to say the same thing, just using two different sets of words. Right, this is the very same word that in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, people think means the law has been abolished because they use this same word. But you can see here that it means the goal, the result. You can see here it's the goal or purpose. It's, it's to lead us to. That word tell us, you may say, I've never heard that word before, but you have. Anybody ever see a telescope? That telos and telescope is the same thing. Telescope means to allow you to see the goal. To see what you're trying to see. As if Paul didn't give us enough to understand in chapter 6, he ends it with verse 23, which everybody learns to quote probably in first or second grade. Or at least when we were kids and you were still allowed to study the Bible. For the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn, what we deserve, what God owes us. And that doesn't mean before you get saved. It means even after. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua 
our, what's that last word? Lord. What's a Lord? The master, the master of the slave. The one whom we obey. If we say we don't follow God's commandments anymore, we're free to do whatever we want, then Yeshua is not our Lord. That's not what the word Lord means. And in verse 7, chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 1 begins, Or do you not know, brethren? Have we changed topics? No, we have not. What does it mean when he says, or do you not know? What's he calling them? Dumb. Ignorant. Without understanding. Without knowledge. Uh, or do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law. You know what? I've got commentaries that say, oh, Paul's only talking to the Jews now. Oh, no. He's talking to everyone in the congregation in Rome. How do they know the law if they were born Gentile? They've been learning it in the congregation. They've been taught. Paul teaches it. Peter and John taught it. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Well, is that true even in American jurisprudence? Herb was a detective, right? You arrest somebody, they go to trial. What if they die before the trial gets completed? The case has gone away, right? It evaporates. If the person gets convicted and then dies while the case is on appeal, the guilty verdict is set aside as if it never happened. Because they're no longer subject to the law. And Paul is setting up a concept here. Not that the law does not apply, but that we're no longer slaves to sin once we die. And the reason people have a hard time understanding chapter 7 is because it's translated in such terms that it's confusing as to what the subject even is. But it's continuing, God bless you, chapter 6, verse 15's argument using an analogy to marriage. And what was chapter 6, verse 15's argument? What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May genito. God forbid. No way, Jose. So, let's keep reading. And if you stop reading chapter 7 before you get to the end, you will be misled. This is one of those where Paul takes a long time to set up the point and then makes it at the very last minute. So let's look at verse 1 a little more. Brethren, let's look at Romans 1.13 where Paul first uses brethren. Who's he talking about? He tells us. Romans 1.13 
Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, same word, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also just as among the other Gentiles. So when Paul says brethren, is he talking only to Jewish people? No, he says specifically, he is not. Other Gentiles. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Also written by Paul to Gentile believers, believers out of the Gentile world. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 1 and 2. He tells us specifically, this is written to believers out of the Gentile world. He says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Messiah. And I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. What's that Greek word traditions? Parodesis, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word halakha. So Paul's been teaching them to keep the commandments of God. Why? Let's go back to Exodus 21.10. Exodus 21.10. At first thought, this doesn't look like it has anything to do with anything, but it does. What if a man takes a second wife? If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. So as the Gentiles are grafted in to the bride of Messiah, they all must be treated equally and equitably in according to the law. Go to Deuteronomy 22. Oh, while you're there, stop at Numbers 15. Another common argument is, Wayne, the law never applied to Gentiles. Is that what your Bible says? Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. Give me another way to say that, the stranger who dwells with you. The wild olive tree that's grafted into the cultivated, yeah. An ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Now on to Deuteronomy 22. Two different verses we want to look at in Deuteronomy 22. The first is verse 19. I don't want to do those. Let's go on back to Romans. I changed my mind. Verse 
The reason I was going to look at those is because in chapter 7, verse 1, it's going to use the analogy of the law of marriage. If I take a wife, how long am I entitled um, to follow those laws? When am I able to finally stop? The answer is, when she dies, then I'm no longer under the rules of the marriage. And Paul's going to use that as an analogy here, but I, I'm really not liking it the more I think about it. So let's just go on. Verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Of course, the analogy is we as the believers are the bride of Messiah. He's the husband. How long does the husband live? Forever. So he has to use a human example but in a human marriage how long is the bride under the command and jurisdiction of her husband for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives but if the husband dies she is released from the law of her husband this sets up a very confusing analogy that have caused people to go astray we have to keep following it for the moment. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. So one who is the bride of Messiah, who turns away in sin and follows after the ways of another, the Bible calls an adulteress. So idolatry they call adultery. You see where he's going. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Messiah. We're going to find out that that's the way it's translated, but that's not what Paul's trying to get across. It's not that the commandments of God don't apply anymore. It's that we're not in subjection to the sin. So let's go back to Romans 6. And just remember, verse 15, this is an explanation of that verse. What then shall we sin because we're not saved by law, but saved by grace? It's certainly not. And even back to chapter 6, verse 1, which sets up the analogy better. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's Paul's point in chapter 7. Is that before we got saved, we had no choice but to sin. We had no way to avoid it. But when we were buried with Messiah in baptism, that hold that sin had over us as our master is broken. That's what he's referring to here in chapter 7, verse 4. So it goes on to say in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law through the body of Messiah, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Verse 4 means no longer does sin have dominion over us. We've been set free from that dominion. And now we're servants of Messiah. 
servants of righteousness. Sin does not have that hold over us anymore. We're no longer slaves of sin. Let's keep going, because he will explain it eventually. But people just pick verses out of here and make it sound like something it's not. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, make note of that phrase, in the flesh. That's what Paul means by before we were saved. We were walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. He's going to use the, those two phrases often in the next couple chapters. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. When he says which were aroused by the law, he's saying that when God said thou shalt not, our sinful body's reaction was to say, who are you to tell us we can't? I will do what I want to do. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. I know chapter 7 is a little confusing. I'm trying to, to explain it the best I can. But until we get to the end, we won't see the full picture. Genesis 6, verses 15 to 23. must have written down a wrong reference because it doesn't go through verse 23 Arg. okay to Ephesians 2 then huh. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 written by the same author Paul only I think perhaps it's a little more clear than it is in Romans, the point that he's trying to get across. And you he made alive, that is in our resurrection with him, are coming out of the baptismal waters, which was a picture of new life, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? That's Satan. What has Satan wanted from the beginning? For us to obey God or him? And the answer is him. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Just make a note of 1 John 3.10. Among whom we also we were all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Paul says before we got saved, we were all sinners. We had no self-control. We did bad things. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath just as the others. What's he mean by children of wrath? What was our ultimate goal to be if we hadn't gotten saved? The wrath of God. 
But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says what? When you got saved and were buried with Messiah in baptism, raised to new life, now how do we walk? In righteousness. In good works. What's the Hebrew word for good works? The mitzvot. What's the Hebrew word for commandments? Mitzvot. It's the same word. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the Hebrew concept of walking in them? That's how we live our lives. That's halakha. Let's go back to Romans chapter 7. We're up to verse 6. But now, that is after we've been saved, but now we have been delivered from the law. By that he means the law which caused us to rebel. If God had never said, don't eat from the tree in a garden, would they have ever even wanted to eat from it? Probably not. But once God said, thou shalt not eat from it, now they want to eat from it. That's what he means by being delivered from the law. From the law's tendency to cause us before we're saved to want to sin. Having died to what we were held by, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This newness of the spirit and oldness of the letter we're going to see a lot from now on. The oldness of the letter means the commandments that were written on tablets of stone that were external to us. The newness of the spirit in the new covenant, where's the law written? On our hearts. It's not external anymore. It's internal. It doesn't cause us to want to rebel against it. It becomes our heart's desire to follow it. It's not external. It's our desire. It's what we want. I want to read a quote from the Liberty Bible Commentary, the New Testament volume, which is volume 2, page 369. Let's see. We're on verse 6. So we get on the right page. Let's see. Here we go. It says, quote, 
The holy law of God is not an external code of do's and don'ts. Rather, it's a law of love written on our hearts. That's what the New Testament is. The law is written on our hearts. We do not obey that law because we fear the Lord, meaning afraid of punishment, but because we love him. That's what he's trying to get across in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John 5, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Before we got saved, the law was just an external set of commandments that if we break one, we're going to go to an eternal punishment. But the body wanted to rebel. It wanted to break the commandments. We just had to. We were a slave to sin. But we're not slaves to sin anymore. We're slaves to righteousness. The laws on our hearts and our minds, we want to do it. We choose to do it because we love the Lord. And what does he say? If you don't keep the commandments, then you don't love him. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Second Corinthians chapter three, verses one to three. Second Corinthians three, verses one to three. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Messiah, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Never does a set of external rules that you do it or die, never do they motivate you to righteousness. It's not until it's taken internal, on the heart, which becomes a matter of faith and love, that it really, really becomes real to us. Now, let's get to another major noito, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? What's the answer? Mejanoito. Absolutely not. Let me make an adjustment here to an option. There we go. Okay. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. He gives an example. For I would not have known covetedness unless the law had said you shall not covet. How many of you, when you're three years old, said, boy, I should avoid covetousness? Did you even know what it was? How many of you, when you first came across the commandment, thou shalt not covet, had to go look up in a dictionary to find out what it meant? Yeah. So he's trying to say is, you wouldn't know what God required if he did not tell you. 
What are we going to be judged by come judgment day? Did we or did we not follow God's commandments? What if he never told us what they were? Wouldn't that be a fun judgment day? That's that nightmare I keep having that I signed up for a college class, forgot to go, and it's time for the final exam, and I don't know what the class was about. That's a horrible way to face an exam. But what did God give us? He gave us the answers. That's certainly not, that's major again. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. That's why 1 John 3, 4 says sin is what? Lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's commandments. Where do you find God's commandments? I hear people say, I don't need to read the Bible. The Holy Spirit will tell me what's right and what's wrong. We'll see how that works out come Judgment Day. Also says test the spirits to see whether they're of God. And it says study to show thyself approved, doesn't it? You need to test it with the scriptures. What did the Bereans do whenever Paul taught them something? They tested it against the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures are always going to be true and correct and fallible. Verse 8. Oh, verse 8 reminds us we all have what the Hebrews call an evil inclination, the yetzer ra. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, mean as soon as I knew God said thou shalt not, I wanted to do it. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. That's the yetzer ra, the evil inclination. For apart from the law, sin was dead. If God hadn't told us, then he wouldn't hold us responsible for it. Yeah. How many of you have had children? You teach children. And when you tell them not to do something, what do they want to do? They want to just go do it, don't they? Ah. That's the evil inclination. Who is God to tell me what I can't eat? Well, just ask Adam and Eve. So verse 9, I was alive once without the law. Paul was born a baby just like the rest of us. Babies don't know right from wrong. But when the commandment came, that is when he learned what they were, sin revived and I died. He says, as soon as I knew what not to do, I did it. Why do I say that when I was too young to know? Well, let's go back first to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. I get asked often, is there truly an age of accountability? And I think the answer is, I think it's yes, but I don't know exactly what that age is. So if you're old enough to ask the question, whatever it is you're thinking about doing, don't. Deuteronomy 139. God says, moreover. Oops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. Moreover. 
your little ones, that's the children, and your children who you say will be victims who today have no knowledge of good and evil. Why do they have no knowledge of good and evil? They're too young to understand. So does God hold them accountable for the sins of the people? He does not. He says, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there that is into the promised land. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Because they were too young to know what the commandments are, God does not hold them accountable for the sins of the people. We read the same thing in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 is specifically in the literal terms about King Hezekiah, who is the son of King Ahaz. It's a dual fulfillment prophecy, though, and the dual fulfillment is Messiah. But Isaiah 7, verses 15 to 16. We'll start in 14, because y'all know that prophecy. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word is not virgin. Virgin In Hebrew it's Alma, which means a virtuous young woman. So if she's not married, she's a virgin. If she is married, she's faithful. Ahaz's wife is not a virgin. She's a faithful wife. But in the second fulfillment, which is Messiah, Mary was a virgin. So God chose a word that would apply to both cases. Curds and honey he shall eat. That's because being the son of King Ahaz, he gets good food. That he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So before his son is old enough to know right from wrong, then the two lands that are threatening Judah will lose both their kings. So in verse 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good means before he's old enough to be held accountable for following the scriptures, the commandments. And of course, that's the reason for the bar mitzvah ceremony that we have here on occasion. Is parents recognizing that the child is now old enough to recognize right from wrong and to be accountable for following the commandments of God. So is that the age that they're just guessing? That's the age that they have decided to assign. Are they right or wrong? We'll find out. Okay, on to verse 10. So let's go back to Romans. That's what the parents say, don't blame me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Romans chapter 7, verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. What's he mean in the commandment which was to bring life? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 again. Because this is what Paul's referring back to. 
The commandments were to bring life. Deuteronomy 30, 15. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you. <coughs> in the land which you go to possess. Also in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. And when he asked Messiah what commandments should we keep to get eternal life, did he quote from something other than the Torah or did he quote the Torah? He quoted the Torah. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Problem in that statement says, which if a man does, and who's ever kept them perfectly besides Messiah? No one. Ezekiel chapter 20. Verses 11 to 13. Eleven to thirteen. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, they despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbath. And I said, I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. And again in verse 21. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments. Which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbath. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. So you see what Paul is saying up here in Romans 6, or Romans 7, let's go back to Romans 7, is that the commandments were given for us to walk in them out of faith and love, and therefore walk in life. What happens when instead the flesh rebels and breaks them? Then that which was meant to bring life brings death. Exactly. It wasn't the commandment that brought death. It was the breaking of them. Because what did he just tell us? The wages of sin is what? Death. death. So that's what he means in verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Why? Because I broke them. Is the Apostle Paul saying that before he got saved, he was a sinner? Yes, he is. Verse 11, 4, because sin, 
taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. What killed him? The sin. Who can see? Who deceived him, though? The sin. The sin deceived him. Yes. The body wants to rebel against the commandment. And how did Satan do that in the garden? Did God really say? God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like God's knowing good from evil. He wants to deprive you of this. So is it the sin or is it Satan? Or is it our evil inclination? It's the evil inclination which comes from Satan that causes us to want to break the commandments. Yeah. It's inherited from our fathers because of what Adam did in obeying Satan in the garden. That's why I say it's from Satan. That's where it originated. And ever since Adam, man has wanted to break God's commandments. So that's the deception that we can do whatever we want and God's going to save us anyway. So that's so when Eve said deceive me, it's sin, sin deceived her. Not that she was already sinful because she was thinking about, about it, right? Like, Correct, because she obeyed Satan. Satan told her this was going to be a great and wonderful thing, and it wasn't. It brought death. Would anybody, before you got saved, have committed a sin if you really believe, now if I do this, I'm going to burn in the lake of fire forever. No. They're deceived. They think it's okay that they can walk in sin and go to heaven anyway. And is that not what so many churches are teaching today? They're deceived. They think that God did not really mean what he said. He's giving them over to, do you think now it, he's giving them over to strong delusion? Yes, absolutely. Into a reprobate mind. Yeah. Reprobate means can't discern between right and wrong, good and evil. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. There's by the commandment in eight, uh-huh. And, and then the commandment in nine. Yeah, and there's the commandment in nine. And ten, there's the commandment. And eleven and twelve. And eleven and twelve, that's correct. He just gave one example, covetousness. But you can apply it to all the commandments. He picked one out. He picks one out that we're all going to trip over. Did you ever, as a child, want something that you couldn't have? Do you take any candy from the local penny candy store? You don't have to tell me you did. But Paul picked one that, yeah, we, we have to admit, I wanted something I shouldn't have had. So that's what verse 11 means. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. God said, don't do it. My sinful flesh said, oh, it's okay. And by it, it killed me. Because the wages of sin is death. death. 
So the only note you can put there is see Romans 6.23. Because he's still trying to explain chapter 6 in less theological terms. That's why it's confusing to us. He's trying to talk to us person to person. It's confusing us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Verse 12. Thankfully for you, perhaps, I got a whole page of notes missing here. But that's because verse 12 is such a very important verse. Therefore, what does the word therefore mean? Because he is summing up the first part of chapter 7 and applying it. The law is holy. Holiness, sanctification, interchangeable. How do we become righteous in the eyes of God? We're saved by faith and then we repent and turn away from our sins. Law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. If you read just verses 1 through 11, you might think, well, the commandments, they sound pretty bad. Paul said, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. What's wrong is I, in my flesh, broke it. That's why death got me. Wasn't anything wrong with the commandments. It was what was wrong with me. In my flesh, I am weak. I was a slave to sin, and it got me. So let's look at Acts 24, 14. Acts 24, 14. How does Paul feel about the law? Acts 24, 14. He tells us with his own lips. Did he say when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the law was abolished? Is that what he says? No. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, Haderic in Hebrew, which they call a sect, meaning just another sect of Judaism, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. What portion of the law does Paul not believe anymore? He believes it all. Acts 25, 8. Paul again says, Well, he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all? If Paul was teaching that the law has been abolished and the commandments are not to be followed, would this statement be true? Paul would be a liar. So for this statement to be true, Paul's been teaching even the Gentiles to keep the commandments of God as he said he is doing. In Romans 7, which I realize that's where we are right now, but in verse 22, in case we don't get there tonight, 
It says, for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. How does Paul feel about the Torah? He delights in it. It's an onig, a thing of delight. 1 Corinthians 9.8 Paul's talking. Paul's teaching. Paul says, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law, the Torah, say the same also? Is he teaching contrary to the law? No, he's teaching consistent with the law. That's what he says. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Meaning not as a way of earning salvation, but as a way of showing God your love and faith. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is just quoting from Jeremiah 31. Verse 33. is Hebrews 8, 10. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, my Torah, my commandments in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. People confuse old covenant, new covenant and think it means old law, new law. And it does not. Hmm. Back to Romans. Chapter 7. Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? There's that machinoito again. So his point here is it's not the commandment that brought death to me. It was my breaking the commandment that brought death to me. It says, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. That is, it used the commandment and persuaded me to break it to bring me death. So the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Not the commandment, but the breaking of it. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Let's go to Zechariah 7.12. Zechariah 
When he says in Romans 7, 14, that the law is spiritual, what does that mean, it's spiritual? It means it's from the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's the one who writes it on our hearts. So in Zechariah 7, 12, it says, yes, they made their hearts like flint. What's flint? It's a stone, a rock. Refusing to hear the law, the Torah, and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Where did the law come from? It was given from God through what? Through his spirit. Meaning the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that indwells you and I as believers brought the commandments of God to mankind in days of old. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Um, I hope I'm not opening up a can of worms here, but so going back to where we're too young to be accountable. There's a time where we're too young for God to hold us accountable for our sin, yeah. Is that also Yeshua? I mean, like, because Yeshua couldn't sin from the beginning, right? So even as a baby, like, he didn't sin because he always knew the law because the Spirit of God was always with him. Okay. I mean, is that, is that, is that correct? When we get to heaven, we'll ask him, but I would say it's probably correct. Okay. What were y'all saying up there? Nothing important. <laughs> <laughs> Now she was asking, does that mean that before Yeshua was of age to reason, did he sin? And the answer is, of course not, because the scripture says until they're of reasonable age, sin is not imputed. We at least know when he was 12 years old, he could reason scriptures with... We at least know when he was 12 years old, he could reason the scriptures with the best of the doctors. I mean, I thought that, but... I've heard it said. So that knocks that whole 13 year old thing in the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1. Yeah, we're still in verse 14. Yep, 2 Peter 1.21. Yeah, A reasonable question, I understand. Yeah. 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's still people who think the Holy Spirit didn't come till the New Testament. All I'm trying to show here is Paul's saying that the law is spiritual. It came through the Holy Spirit. So it always was good. It always was right. Back to Romans, chapter 7. Let's see if we can finish this up. Verse 15. Uh-oh. This is where people really get confused. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. For what I hate, that I do. One thing I noticed is they don't get the tenses right, necessarily. But verse 15 says, if I try to keep the commandments of God just through my own fleshly efforts, I'm going to fail. I need help. 
I need the Holy Spirit. I need God. And that's what we're going to get to when we finish the book, the chapter anyway. But that's his point in verse 15. In my carnal nature, I don't do right. That's why we cannot let our carnal natures rule us. Remember at Passover, the thing called the Hallel Sandwich? Where you have the little bit of horseradish on one end and a lot of the sweet charoset on the other? And we talk about then that once we're saved, we have two natures. You still have that sin nature inside you. But then you have the godly nature through the Holy Spirit. Which one do you let people see? Which one do you exercise? Which one do you feed? But if you're trying to keep the commandments of God by your own fleshly power and nature, you're going to fail. We need help. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Verse 16 he says, I know that sin is wrong. But still, if I only rely upon my flesh and blood nature and don't allow the Holy Spirit to help me, I'm going to fail. I know not to sin, but how do I avoid it? That's really what chapter 7 is about, is how do I stop the sin? He says in chapter 6, don't continue in sin. Chapter 7 is, but how? Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, yes, I have two natures. One wants to continue to sin, but the one through the Holy Spirit of God wants me to do right. Which one will I listen to? Which one will I follow? Which one will I yield to? Verse 18, for because I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in my fleshly ways, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For because, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Again, this is, if I just allow my fleshly nature to control my actions, I may want to do right, but I'm still going to fail. Why is he telling this to believers at Rome? To encourage them to work hard at overcoming that. To encourage them to work hard at overcoming the nature. They need help to do that. They need the Holy Spirit. They need to pray to God to study. To let the Holy Spirit rule in their life. And not that old nature. Right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does it mean to discipline? To keep it under subjection. That's what he's telling us all to do. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, 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 no. You can't let that old nature come back into control. Because that old nature still is going to want to take you into sin. 
And if you allow it to take you into sin, it will take you to death. That's where he's going. Verse 20. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's not saying that's an excuse. He's saying, I gave in to that inner man of flesh and blood. I failed God if I do that. Verse 21, I find then a law. He's not talking about a law of God. He's just saying a law of nature. That evil is present with me. Everybody go, well, duh. The one who wills to do good. So he says, I want to do good, but if I let my human nature control, I'm still going to go astray. I'm still going to violate God. Does that mean that it's work to control yourself? Yes, it is. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Let me read you a quote from the Liberty Baptist Bible Commentary. It says, It is the desire of Paul, as it should be with every believer, to love and obey the law of God. I read that and said, Yipper. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members. This is not the law of God. This, again, is a law of nature. Warring against the law of my mind, that's the law of God. So one is the body wanting to do wrong, and the other is the mind wanting to follow God's will. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. He says that could happen. If I'm not careful. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's where we get to where he's driving through this whole chapter. If I have this sinful nature still in me. That's fighting tooth and nail to drag me back into sin. And I now know that the law has been written on my heart and mind. And it's what I want to do. How can I not give in to the body of flesh. How can I not give in to that desire? So that's the issue. O regiment that I am, who will deliver me through this body of death? And the answer is in verse 25. I thank God through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. So how is it we can put our body and fleshly mind into subjection and follow the will of God? It's only by God through what our Messiah Yeshua did for us. So in chapter 6 he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. And now he's saying, But the only way to accomplish that is to subject yourself to God. To let God lead you. Don't let the fleshly desires of lust and sexual immorality, etc. Take command of your life. Who can deliver me? Only God. Yes, ma'am? His focus then is delight in the law. Yes. So delight in God. Right. And that's the way to conquer all that. Right. Keep your focus on God and delight in him. Yep. If you continue to keep the love for God alive, 
The love for God is demonstrated through obedience. That's the way to go. What did Messiah complain about the church of Ephesus? They have left their first love. They've started to let go of the love of God and return back to letting the fleshly mind and fleshly body rule in their lives. And what did the Lord say? Repent or else. So here we have verse 25. I thank God through Yeshua the Messiah our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So which then do we allow to rule in our lives? The law of God or the law of sin? Law of God. But you have to want that to be the outcome. That's where we have to circumcise our heart because that's the flesh. That's where we have to circumcise our heart, which means what? To love God enough. To let the Holy Spirit live in us and lead us and guide us. Put away that body of flesh, that sinful mind. So chapter 6 was about you cannot continue in sin. Chapter 7 is, but you can't do that just because you want to. You have to put the body in subjection. And let the Holy Spirit of God rule in your life. Is that why there was a bosom of Abraham for the old covenant, the old covenant deceased? I don't understand the question. Like we, through Messiah Yeshua, uh -huh. have a circumcised heart because the Holy Spirit can live in us. Right. The old covenant, they just had it on stone, so it wasn't in <clears throat> heart, right? Yeah, but what does that do with the bosom of Abraham? I thought the bosom of Abraham was the dead that um, were faithful. That yes. In Sheol, there were two sides. The bosom of Abraham was for those who died as believers. And the other and side for those... Yeshua, right? Correct. Yeshua hadn't been given. But they believed God's promise that he was sending Yeshua to be the Messiah, to be the atonement, to be the sacrifice. They believed God's promise. You and I look back and believe that God fulfilled his promise. They look forward and believe that he would. And what does God do? And he believed in God and God accounted to him for righteousness. So did they believe God would do what he said he would do or didn't they? And then, of course, when Messiah died, he went down to Sheol and presented himself to Abraham's bosom side and said, I am the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and you've been looking for for these 4,000 years. I have come. And with that, we're out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 8.